Welcome back to Outside the System, everyone. Today, I'm speaking with Callie Means, the founder of True Medicine. Quick disclaimer before we get into the episode, I made a small investment in True Medicine a couple months ago, so just wanted to make sure everyone knew that before we dive in. We spent most of the episode actually talking about our food system, health problems that Americans face today, and how the two are related. We didn't actually spend that much time on True Medicine, but we definitely spent um, the majority of the time talking about the problem. True Medicine is working to fix that problem, and if you listen to the end, you'll hear how exactly they're doing that. So without further ado, let's get into the episode. Callie, thanks for joining me on the show today. So great to be here, Neil. Yeah, so I think you and I met maybe a few months back. Uh, I mean, this is actually the first time we're talking live, but we met via email uh, through Justin because of the company that you're working on, True Medicine, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point on the episode. But, um, you know, I think I personally, when I first heard about what you were working on, I was like, this is very much needed. Um, I think around that time, I had just done an episode with Crowd Health, which is one of the most popular episodes that we've done on this show. Um, so it was just kind of like thinking about these outside the system healthcare solutions and, you know, then have followed your journey since then and you blew up on Twitter this week. So let's maybe start there. Uh, and we can, obviously you can talk about true medicine as well and what you're sure. building, but, um, I, I think like you're, you're without stealing your thunder, your thread was super, super interesting. Uh, so I want to maybe start, start at that point. Thanks, Neil. Yeah, for for a while, I've I've been starting companies, and as you said, just started a company with Justin Mares to change these healthcare incentives. But as we've been doing that, I was thinking of back on my early life, and um, you know, I was born and raised, as you could say, in the swamp in Washington D.C. And you know, growing up, really thought I was going to be in politics my whole life. I was very, very ideological, very driven by trying to help America. I think for the right reasons, and. Uh, early in my career, after graduating uh, from from college, I uh, I worked on some campaigns and quickly learned that when the campaigns are over, uh, people from the right and the left they go to consulting these uh, public affairs and various consulting groups. And as I've been really become passionate about our broken food system and I think relatedly our broken health system, I you know having flashbacks to being in the room with processed food and farm executives. And to me, honestly, last week I was feeding my my newborn, uh, my, my my new son a bottle, and uh, and didn't really think this Twitter thread would blow up. I, I thought it was kind of obvious, but but it did. Uh, I shared some reflections on on the playbook I saw because I, I I think these companies really executed a playbook from from being inside the room earlier in my career. I think it's very relevant to today, and it really seemed to resonate because I think I think a lot of people are frustrated looking at what's happening to kids, looking at what's happening to the health of Americans. You know, fifty percent of adults now having prediabetes or diabetes. I think something clearly uh, wrong is happening, and I, I think people are beginning to understand it goes to our food system. So yeah, can, can dive into kind of the playbook I saw specifically working with Coke. Yeah, well, I mean, definitely, and I think what it kind of comes down to is how a lot of these companies are using. Um, government as almost a government and public opinion as a instrument to just essentially increase their profits at the expense of, you know, people's health. And, you know, I think uh, you, you mentioned this in the thread, but there's elements of like the culture war here where people are, you know, these, these organizations and these companies are trying to essentially leverage um, and call their opponents racist for doing certain, certain things. So, right. Um, I'll let you kind of dive into the playbook yeah. that you saw, and then you know, would love to also see how it's applied to other things beyond just you know, Coca you use Coca Cola as an example, but I'm sure they're not the only company following this playbook. Yeah, so so here, here's here's kind of what I saw, and I think we all know it's not news when the system's rigged, but I think what's 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 notable, and I think people don't fully understand, is how there's a strategic effort to rig the systems of trust these these nonpartisan systems of trust. So. Coke, it was very interesting. Um, it was 2011, 2012, and the issue is food stamps. So food stamps is a $110 billion government program that 15% of the American people rely on for nutrition. It's very important uh, for, for a lot of Americans, for millions of Americans. And shockingly, 10% of all food stamp spending goes to sugary drinks. It's the number one item purchased on food stamps. In total, 70% wow. of food stamp spendings goes to processed food. You know, this obviously makes no sense. It does not make sense to be, you know, subsidizing, you know, addictive, non-nutritious, sugary drinks that are just diabetes bombs. 
you know, which really, really hamper, you know, th- those communities. If you, if you subsidize drugs for me, I would, I would probably be addicted. It's like these are addictive drugs that are really doing destruction of the body. And then, of course, from a public policy perspective, that's causing trillions of dollars of down, downstream health issues. So this obviously made no sense. But Coke wanted to keep the status quo. Obviously, they, you know, $10 billion of food stamps is spent on, on soda and sugary drinks. So there's three parts, as you alluded to. What was shocking to me is that it's very bad optics to me. You had, you know, these PR consultants, you know, old, you know, white guys at Coke ca- calling the NAACP a, a leading civil rights group. And the, the meetings were shockingly transactional. It was, we're going to give the NAACP, Coke is going to give the NAACP millions of dollars and you need to call our opponents racist. And in this case, the opponents that Coke was calling racist were parents and various groups that were concerned about kids eating too much sugar. So once you call someone racist, it you know shuts down the debate. And there's reporting in the New York Times 2012. This is still done to this day, where groups are paid. You know, to, it's really Orwellian to call to call parents racist. Um, parents trying to not have their kids eat 100 times more sugar than they did 100 years ago. The second group is think tanks, which are very influential in, in D.C. to create policy. I was an intern at the Heritage Foundation early, you know, in college, and and that was kind of the big, you know, conservative think tank of, of, of conservative thought leadership. It's totally pay to play. Um, I, you know, watched farm executives, soda executives go in there. They get a study, you know, saying that we shouldn't be reducing drug prices. Probably saying now, right, that we need to cure obesity with you know medical innovation on these you know injectables for kids. It, it's all it's all it's pay to play, and and you get yeah. a lot of protection on the right, and then. And this kind of goes into, I think, what's very relevant today. Uh, I was floored that uh, research institutions, that universities are essentially public relations departments for special interests. Um, You know, as a junior person at one of these, you know, public affairs companies, I was pulling lists of professors for pharma companies who have spoken out or conducted research on opioids or conducted research on you know, uh, various other drugs that were of interest. And then pharma takes that list. They create a donation plan. You know, for instance, the president of Stanford Med School at the time in 2010 was a pain specialist. Pfizer and other opioid companies donated millions of dollars to Stanford. And they pushed the NIH to make him the chair of an opioid panel, which was then stacked with a bunch of other uh, professors at various universities who have been paid off by opioid makers. And that opioid panel recommended loose guidelines for opioids, which has led to total devastation. But that's how it works. And I just to kind of close the loop on how it's relevant to today, you know, I think we can talk a lot about pharma and I think it's well known, but I think honestly needs to be better known just how rigged these studies are, you know, that lead to certain recommendations instead of healthy eating or exercise, you know, taking drugs, you know, the more statins we take, the more heart disease how goes convenient. up, the more Yeah. Uh, how yeah. And, and they happen to sell those products. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but but it's it's funny uh, on the nutrition front, um, you know, we steered a lot of money and I saw a lot of money get steered, you know, 10 years ago to different nutrition studies. Uh, processed food companies uh, spend 11 times more on nutrition funding than the NIH. And just in the past year, the, the landmark NIH study uh, just came out with Tufts University, funded millions of dollars, called the most comprehensive nutrition study in history, funded as well by food companies. And it had some groundbreaking reports such as Lucky Charms being three times more nutritious than an egg and Honey Nut Cheerios being yeah, more was... nutritious than beef. So that's the type of that that would be funny if it wasn't it's weaponized by food companies. Pharma turns a blind eye because they're profiting from the devastation that's being caused by the American diet. And then these studies with an NIH stamp are being used to create school nutrition policy, food stamp policy. It's really, it's actually, in my opinion, this is what Justin and I really are working on. I think it's the biggest issue we face because it's a first order issue because our brains and bodies are under threat. Yep. And I want to definitely get to that in a second is, is kind of the scale of the problem today. Um, But one thing I'll say is, you know, the, There's a huge distinction that I think is missed, um, especially by, and this is unfortunate, but like folks without a scientific background, they have a almost over, they're almost like overconfident in how science works. And I think there is a difference between science as a practice and science Inc., which is kind of what you're talking about, right? And 
uh, for anyone who's kind of curious to learn more about this topic, there's a great book called Merchants of Doubt, which is actually this very similar playbook. It's it, Merchants of Doubt is how um, this playbook was kind of applied in tobacco for for a number of years. And, you know, that's another tangent we could go on. I actually um, think that a lot of these food companies are, are way worse than than actually what the tobacco companies had done in the past, if you just look at it. Um, but anyway, that's another, that's a tangent. We, maybe we'll skip that tangent. We'll save that for another episode. But this book basically goes into that playbook and, and you see the same exact things that you're talking about where, you know, people are essentially, it's pay to play and using that pay to play strategy, you can kind of fend off any kind of regulation or any kind of, um, pushback on, on your products. And, you know, that seems like that's a timeless playbook is, is essentially using government and these institutions to further your, your goals. Hundred percent, and I think the thing to underline: tobacco did this, and and it's just when you see it, a news article or a news segment touting a new peer-reviewed study, uh, you know this shouldn't need to be said, but but people, everyone still falls for it. It's it's almost like unimpeachable, you know. And 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 looking back, you know, earlier in history to the 1990s food pyramid, which was probably the most destructive public policy guidance given I would oh, argue, yeah. American history. You know, you can, you can Google this and, and, you know, it, it's widely reported. The foundational research uh, of the food pyramid was research from Harvard. And it was, it was the head of the nutrition school studies that said that sugar didn't cause obesity. And that was directly funded by the sugar companies. Um, again, you'd think this doesn't happen anymore, but now we're, we're being told by the NIH that Lucky Charms is better than an egg. So it, this is still happening. Um, yep. And uh, and we just, you know, to me, is it, and, and I've got to be honest, I've been on a journey here. And, and a year ago, I was very despondent. I, I really am. I do think we have big challenges. I actually am. I think it's a message of optimism. I think it's a message to patients. Um, you're never going to get it perfect, but you should question things. You should be an empowered patient. I think the American patient is being has been gaslit over the past 40 years. Absolutely. Uh, in, in the wake of uh, the American people getting, you know, sicker, more depressed, fatter, more infertile at an exponential rate. Yeah, let's talk about some yeah. of those statistics, actually. I mean, you, you shared some. I had done some more research prior sure. to, to us jumping on, you know, diabetes, um, life expectancy, yeah. uh, sperm counts. I mean, yeah, let's talk about some of these, some of these stats. Like what is the scale of the problem that people face? Cause I think there, there is a little bit of, um, what's it, what's it called? Like when, uh, you know, like the, um, the boiling the frog or something where, yeah, people, yeah, definitely. you know, people are, it's like incremental every year. And it's not like, you know, it's not like all of a sudden, sperm counts fell by 50% in like one year, right? Like it's like every year it's gradual, but it just cum accumulates every single year to get worse and worse and worse. Yeah. So in a high level societal issue, I think this is, this is and I'll drill down to the individual. So, so here, here's kind of how I think about it. I, I think a lot of people, maybe even some doctors don't actually fully understand it. And me for a long time, the physiological, like what diabetes is, we hear this term diabetes. It's like, Diabetes is cellular dysregulation. Diabetes is like the energy of our cells, like, like used the mitochondria is glucose, right? And that comes, it, we actually don't need it from food. We produce it, but like it, it, com it comes from food. We're eating 100 to 150 times more sugar than we did 100 years ago, th ever throughout human history. We're also, the foundation of our diet is processed grains. Processed grains are a new food invention in the again. last 100 years. And the processing is, and this is, again, a new invention. They take the fiber out of the whole grain. So it's literally just like, like the inner core that just turns immediately into sugar when it hits the bloodstream. And, and, then, and then inflammatory seed oils, which have gone from 0% of the American diet because they didn't exist 100 years ago to the main source of American fats, which are highly inflammatory and produce you know, worse glucose and, and other responses in the body. So that's what our food is. And when that's entering our body, right? It's causing cellular dysfunction. The, the, the cells, when they get too much glucose from this, from the, from the processed grains and the, and the incredible amount of sugar we're eating, that it kicks it out of the cells and that causes fat and it causes a lot of other dysregulation. So everything we're seeing is upstream of that. Obesity is just one symptom of that. But, you know, diabetes, um, you know, it used to be called adult onset diabetes. It used to be, you know, a very small percentage of the population. Now, 25% of young adults are pre-diabetic. Um, 
And, and that, that prediabetes is just an arbitrary marker on the blood sugar dysregulation. 93% of all Americans have some component, some biomarker of metabolic dysfunction. So, so, so our cells are literally malfunctioning. And when you, when you peel back the onion, you know, obviously heart disease, diabetes, I mean, that should be obvious to most people. If we, if we got those three ingredients, sugar, processed grains, and seed oils out of our diet, we, we wouldn't have diabetes and heart disease. But it's more than that. It's kidney disease. It's respiratory diseases. It's uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. Dementia and Alzheimer's in recent groundbreaking research has been called type 3 diabetes. If you have normal uh, blood sugar levels, if you have normal metabolic biomarkers, you essentially have no chance of getting Alzheimer's. This is a this is a this wow. is a lifestyle disease. And additionally, a huge drive for me is like my mom passed away cancer abruptly in 2021, uh, pancreatic cancer. She was one of the 50% of Americans who suffered from who suffered from blood sugar dysregulation and prediabetes. And many cancers are highly tied to blood sugar dysregulation. Pancreatic cancer it's it's a 90% correlation with prediabetes or diabetes. You essentially have a close to 0% chance of getting mostly many leading forms of cancer if your blood sugar is under control, which, you know, up until 50 years ago, almost every American had that. So I think, you know, when you look societally into what's happening here, a lot of people are sicker. And then, and then, and then a lot of people go, you know, people our age, they go, well, people in their twenties, thirties are healthy. I don't think we actually are. There's anxiety, there's depression, there's fatigue, there's massive infertility issues. And the one thing I'll just say, you know, and I'll kick it back is there's a great book from a Harvard researcher who's kind of gone against the grain called Brain Energy that just came out. And it actually very convincingly argues that bipolar disorder and a lot of mental health diseases are actually highly tied to metabolic issues, to food, uh, makes a very compelling case. And, 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 and that's another important point. This sharp increase in depression and all these mental health issues, 20% of our cells are in our brains. And when cells are dysregulated, bad things happen. So, so that's just, that's just where I kind of set up the societal level. It's like, this is a first order issue. If our, you know, I don't know, I have a young son, but any parents who have kids in, you know, grade school or high school, uh, I'm not hearing that uh, they're, they're super optimistic about what they're seeing with, with what's happening with kids and their developmental and their behavioral issue. There's something happening and, and it relates to food. I mean, you mentioned this in a previous interview that you've done that I was listening to, and uh, you called it wasting our, our human capital or, yeah. or destroying our human capital. Yeah. You know, when you, and, and if you think about it, right, like, I don't think any reasonable person who you talk to on the street would say that, you know, pizza is a vegetable, mm-hmm. but in order to meet, you know, school lunch requirements, the government tried to make that happen and classify pizza as a vegetable because of the tomato sauce, which is wrong on multiple levels, right, considering tomatoes aren't even vegetables. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's issues with that on multiple levels, but it, it kind of comes back to like, these are kind of captured interests. And I think there are people out there who think that these entities are out there protecting them or in looking at their their health as their primary focus. And I think the evidence kind of, especially, you know, your thread kind of made this completely exposed, but um, it seems, you know, there are obviously other interests that are higher priority for them. So to your point on, on all the things that have kind of happened over the last 40, 50 years from a health perspective in America, you know, obviously it's a combination of factors that led to that. What would you say, you know, how, why did this happen? Like what what changed 40, 50 years ago or... Yeah, like what what was kind of the the cycle that made that made that happen? Yeah, so it's a foods number one is a food system that is poisoning Americans, and I think the most important link that's important to understand is you have a medical system that profits off interventions and profits the, the medical system. Every institution, from the med schools to pharma companies to hospitals, every paycheck is paid when interventions on sick people happen. When people are healthy, they lose money. So it's a food system that's poisoned Americans and a medical system that has stood silent. So just just quick history here. Um, yeah, there, there is a there was a big emphasis on more industrial farming techniques, and the two or three, I would say, as we talked about, massive farming techniques is like monocropping to do grains to put into packaged food that can stand the shelf forever to take that fiber out, which. Uh, which 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 rots, which goes stale. So when you take that out, the grains are more stable. You mix them with seed oils, preservatives, 
and that stays on the shelf. And that's 70% of life. the American diet. That's 70% of the American diet. So we made a choice. Now, that wasn't a cost-effective choice because it's been a disastrous for the budget of the United States, right? It's a complete fallacy to say that we couldn't shift our farming practices, you know, and, and have a more whole food policy or serve, you know, more whole food even among lower-income communities. There's nothing more expensive. The reason the United States is going bankrupt as a country is because of lower-income people who have diabetes. I mean, they're costing each the system millions of dollars each with with their different comorbidities. So we shifted the food system. Oh, and the pharma companies are are loving that because it's essentially a subsidy from, it's a transfer payment actually from the government to pharma companies. Exactly, exactly. And what happened is in the 1960s, the birth control pill came on the scene. And the birth control pill actually was the first chronic treatment. Until 1960, nothing in medicine was for chronic. Every medical miracle, I think this is very important to, to any medical miracle we can think of, I bet it's a acute solve, something for acute issues, which is something that's going to kill you relatively imminently, discovered before 1960. Antibiotics, vaccines, emergency surgical procedures for childbirth and, and other dangerous things, appendicitis. The, the things that are really like, like have propelled life expectancy forward are, are almost all, all for acute things. But the problem with acute conditions, you know, antibiotics, pharma companies lost interest in antibiotics um, in 1960. Um, you know, there, there, there were more antibiotic strains discovered, I think, before 1960 than that. It's, it, it's, it's, it's complete because it's solved right away. It's not recurring revenue. The, the birth control pill actually show, oh my gosh, we can have somebody on for years. And actually the Sacklers, the Sackler family, the grandfather of the person that did the opioid thing, uh, marketed and patented uh, Valium and these benzos. And by the 1960, late 1960s, 1970s, 25% of American women were on one of these benzos, uh, the, the Valium. And um, and there was crazy marketing practices. And that's continued to this day. Um, there, there's a constant search to figure out and label um, new chronic conditions um, and, and create a pill. The problem is that's led the medical system because that there's been a big growth in the medical system and all the stakeholders that's led the medical system to silo disease. So now you have tens of thousands of different pills, tens of thousands of different medical codes that hospitals can build. You know, when you go to med school, you have 42 specialties to choose from, 82 subspecialties. The problem is actually very, it's actually much more simple. It's food, it's we're poisoning ourselves. It's not just diabetes as a siloed condition, but you know, the average American goes to, I think it's something like 20, over 20 doctors, different 28 doctors in their life. 28. And um, yeah. that's just right. So I think I think that's helped the system. Um, so do I think people, there's evil people conspiring? Maybe some, but not many. I didn't see many. I mean, every, everyone can, a lot of people can go to sleep at night. But the food folks feel like they're creating cheap food and feeding America, even though feeding this poison to Americans isn't feeding them. And the pharma companies feel like they're treating conditions that people are really sick with. Nobody along which they the are. chain. Which they are. I mean, I mean, like, like you know, if somebody's extremely metabolic and healthy and um, overweight, and um, I mean, I, I actually very skeptical of statins. I think the research is actually not great. But you know, maybe a statin. I'm not against drugs per se, but it's a moral hazard because. Heart disease has only gone up as we've promoted statins. Why? Because the problem isn't that one biomarker of cholesterol. The problem is that the person is eating really bad inflammatory things and it's going to cause other issues in it's the just body. A marker. It's just a marker of a, of a deeper problem. It's just a symptom or a, 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 a metric that shows the deeper problem, but it doesn't, solving the, that metric doesn't solve the problem. Nobody, and that's, nobody is incentivized to talk about that. And it doesn't yeah. really have to be that way. You, you know, it's crazy thought, but American health policy could, uh, you know, be to keep people healthy. But the problem is the system's gotten so big that in, in expanding healthcare has become a jobs program. The, 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 in 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 seventy eight percent in seventy eight percent of U.S. states, the largest employer in the state is either a hospital or Walmart, the largest food retailer. There's huge momentum to keep these industries going. Um, so yeah, yeah, and I, I think and I think Callie, um, for the listener who's kind of new to all of this, I would definitely encourage you to listen to the Crowd Health episode. Uh, Andy, the founder of Crowd Health, does a really good job breaking down the incentive structures of how insurance prov- and providers 
kind of play and, and are kind of in this ever expanding cycle to increase healthcare spending in America. Um, you know, kind of the, the, the nutshell version is health insurance companies have their profits capped on a percentage basis. So they can only take tw- out of all the premiums paid, you know, that's a total pie of a hundred percent. Their sort of margin on that can be at most by law, 20%. So if you made, let's say you collected a hundred dollars of premiums this year, at most, my profit can be $20. If I want to increase my profit to $40, what do I do? Because I can't change the percentage. I have to now collect $200 of premiums, which means I have to spend 160 of those dollars on healthcare expenses. And then I can keep $40 as profit, which means I doubled healthcare expenditures in order to increase my profit. You so Andy does a much better job than me in explaining that. But that's no, even, kind of how even it's works. a key point. And I, I, I think that's an important episode. I think the, 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 it, most people miss this. Insurance wants costs to go up, they, which means people are It's sicker. the opposite of other types of insurance. Other yeah. types of insurance, you know, you would think an insurance company wants to, if you have a car insurance company, well, if people get in less accidents, you're really happy you're because you collect the premiums. Yep. You, I mean, that's why they do, you know, you sign up for Progressive. They give you the little app to monitor your driving and see, you know, how are, are, do you speed too much? Do you brake too fast? You know, they're incentivized to keep you uh, not getting in accidents so they can keep more of the premium and not pay it out. Health insurance doesn't work that way. And no. that's a, I think none of us understand that unless until you dive into uh, how it actually works. I've talked to health policy experts from Harvard who say the talking, but well, insurance should be an ally. They want to keep costs down. That is, as you very eloquently stated, not correct. Literally. And I, I, to me, literally not correct. I could say this true. Like every institution that impacts our health, uh, you know, you can take it to med schools. Med schools are attached to teaching hospitals. Usually the med school dean is also the head of the hospital, right? They have a system, Right. And they also need funding for their professors to do research. Um, taking back to kind of my experience, uh, the majority of funding for pharmaceuticals and other research, you know, we talked about nutrition, comes from private industry. And I would just ask everyone to be like, kind of step back and just think about the incentives. Are those pharma companies, are those food companies donating billions of dollars to research to advance, you know, nonpartisan, you know, unencumbered scholarship on nutrition and, you know, foundational science. Um, I, I think it's manifestly not. And I can say, you know, a lot of that strategy, right, is created by political consultants and, and consultants of like what university they should donate to. Um, and I just think, I think we need to just be very aware of the incentives. I think, I think this is a little bit uncomfortable because I think there's a lot, there's obviously a lot of dedicated doctors. Um, there's some of the most educated and, dedicated, hardest working people in the country. You know, my sister who, you know, was, was, um, was a surgeon and, uh, you know, very dedicated dropped out because she was so horrified with the system and had a big influence on me. But like, you know, a lot, a lot of my good friends are doctors, but they're not terrible people. They're dedicated, but we still have to be clear out about the incentives, particularly, you know, when it comes to the health you know, for me, it's about, I mean, it's cliche, but it's about kids. I mean, kids are absolutely on the chopping block right now and nobody's fighting for them. Certainly not, uh, certainly not healthcare companies. Expand on that a little bit. Like in, you know, in what, in what way um, are they, are they on the chopping block right now? Yeah. So I, I come from a conservative background, right? I, you know, the idea of personal responsibility, mean, you know, means a lot to me. And I think, you know, a lot of the times these, you know, food and health companies talk about personal responsibility being the patient's fault. When you go into a classroom of five-year-olds and see a, a large percentage of them are overweight and obese, that's not personal choice. There is something very systemically wrong happening. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen like, a, you know, kids around a birthday cake at a three-year-old's birthday, you know, jamming the sugar into the mouth. They look like a, they look, it looks like a group of meth addicts. I mean, it, it is, it is just like very actually unsettling when you step back. I mean, these are highly addicted individuals. Um, and it's so uh, omnipresent, the sugar and the food and how it's weaponized. You know, even the most well-meaning parents can't escape from this uh, and I think feel very stuck. And it's it's impacting the kids' cells. It's, it's getting them addicted to highly inflammatory foods. You know, there's hardly a three or four-year-old in the country who isn't going to throw, a, you know, or, or, or even younger that's going to throw a fit. 
you know, for the day they want carbs, they want sugar instead of, you know, vegetables because the food is weaponized to get them addicted. And this is leading to, you know, absolutely skyrocketing obesity and overweight among children. It's leading to record, um, to just off the charts developmental issues. It's leading to off the charts uh, allergies, which really weren't a thing before 1980 and have skyrocketed. Off the charts autoimmune conditions. All of these things happening at the same time. Again, it goes down to the mitochondria and the foundation of the cellular dysfunction. It's not, in my head, actually even that complicated. It's all tied to like the ton, literally one ton of genetic information of food that's going to these kids' mouth, which is totally weaponized. So it's a hu- it's a horrible problem for America, I think, our future and our human capital. You know, we have a mass epidemic of suicides and depression among uh, teenagers. The number one or the number two cause of death for a teenager is suicide. And there's a huge iceberg below that of depression. That's not normal. Um, and um, yeah, I, I, I think I think a lot of this is tied to diet. And just the last part I'll just kind of close with. Again, it's the it's the food is really a problem. And then what is the medical system doing? Well, the medical system is, um, you know, not to get too, but I'll just say it. I mean, there's millions of, you know, now uh, body surgeries, you know, that we're talking about and, 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 and different things for teenagers and even preteens. Um, there is now the American Academy of Pediatrics recommending um, surgery for kids as young as 12 who are obese. That's a lot of kids. <laughs> like yeah. like, like yeah. The, 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 the mental and physiological damage of having a massive surgery for something that's totally, and here's the key, is, is that surgery, they say that it makes you eat less. But if you're still pounding processed food, inflammatory oils, sugar, you're still causing, you're still not giving your cells what they need to thrive, you're still going to have massive issues down the road. It's a Band-Aid. And, um, well, you know, it's a highly profitable Band-Aid. There's a lot of things that come along with a surgery. You know, the cost of that surgery that now the hospital or, you know, and or surgeon gets, uh, the drugs that will come on after that, you know, for medications to manage your pain and everything post-surgery. And it's, to your point, it's another intervention. It's not a, you know, what is the the food and exercise regime we could try first with this child, you know, it goes immediately to surgery and it's diabolical actually on multiple levels because it's sad because not only is it basically, I mean, it's essentially treating these kids like a product because you know, they're, you know, yeah, they're being milked for the the profitability uh, of them and of these interventions, but it goes even beyond that because the surgery is not risk-free. And there will be complications for some of these kids, you know, even if on a percentage basis, you say, hey, it's half a percent of the kids or a tenth of a percent of the kids who get the surgery have some kind of life altering complication. You know, even if you only have a thousand surgeries, that's still one kid who's going to be life altered, like their life will never be the same. And you multiply Mm -hmm. that across all the people who have childhood obesity. I mean, you might be talking about hundreds or thousands of kids having life-altering problems as a result of the surgery it's 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 a it's it's heartbreaking i mean i mean i truly get emotional like thinking about my little son and him going to this world where they are targets um you know i know you know chatting with leading you know functional medicine experts whose you know children are facing a lot of depression and they're being highly highly pushed to be on drugs and and, and some are i mean it's a tough na- environment to navigate we're all defaulting to drugs 15 percent of american high school seniors are on adderall you know adderall which um again i mean there might be a place for for different i'm not blanket anti-drugs but you know adderall the, the book blitz is it's just fascinating oh yeah um, it was yep. created by that. the nazis uh yeah it was literally created by the it's one molecule away from crystal meth um yep. you know it's what they gave german <laughs> soldiers book. yeah it's what they gave german soldiers it's actually a less potent version than the Adderall kids take now. It's what German soldiers took to, to fight harder, and, and they discontinued it in the, in the Nazi army because it led to mass psychosis when people took it too. So it's like it's just like you know we're we're, we're losing our way a little bit here, um, and unfortunately, you know, just tying back to kind of the influence peddling, there's just not a lobbying group for kids. Um, the American Academy of Pediatrics, which again credentials pediatricians. This isn't. This is not a French group. They can take a license away. They're the gold standard 
The fact that they said that 12 year olds should have surgery for obesity on a mass scale is an absolute scandal. Um, and it's, it's absolutely, you also mentioned another thing, Neil, like, you know, the, this whole gaslighting on limited side effects, this, that it's like, we don't have any appreciation or awe for the human body and the metabolism and how our body works. Absolutely. It's like, they literally said on a totally sham 60 minutes episode about this, this weight loss, miracle weight loss injection that it had low side effects. If you actually look at the report and more than 50% of people who've taken it have severe gastrointestinal issues. Now, serotonin, which regulates our happiness and mood is produced 95% of it's produced in the gut, not the brain. So whenever you have massive gastrointestinal issues, like if you have IBS, that's almost guaranteed that you're going to have some more depressive symptoms. So you're telling me there's no side effects when, when the majority of people have mass gastrointestinal issues, which by the way, we don't even know why, but obviously, because you're messing with the fundamental metabol metabolism of humans with this injection, clearly some bad things are going to happen. You're going to have a rampant increase in depression. I mean, that's just obvious. Which is already out of control. Yeah. So, 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 so it's, it, it's unquestionable that this Ozempic drug is going to lead to, to more depression given the severe gastrointestinal issues, which is always tied to increased depression because of the serotonin. So, I mean, there's, to me, it is, it is just a car wreck waiting to happen. And I'm, I am optimistic though, you know, to, I think it is important. It's been a big awakening for me to lay down the problem, but, uh, but mathematically this can't go on. We're going to go bankrupt as a country. Um, right. Healthcare is the largest and fastest growing industry in the United States. We all know the thing, the statistics about the size of it, but, but really, I mean, it is growing at an increasing rate and will be 40% of GDP in, 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 in about 15 years. Um, something has to give mathematically. And there are a lot of people, and I just, you know, am proud to be one small foot soldier in this army, you know, communicating about these issues and trying to put food in. Again, a couple of years ago, this would have sounded fluffy to me, but like we've got to put food at the center of medicine. We're not going to drug our way out of this problem. But I actually think there's an economic opportunity. And I think I, I think I'm optimistic because it has to be that way because it's just the only solution. We have to get Americans healthier or we're, we're literally just going to go bankrupt and be a non-competitive country, which I don't think is going to happen long term. Yeah. And you know, not, not just, um, the bankrupt part, but every single one of these people who is affected by this type of policy or these types of policies, I mean, that's like people's lives. That's their kids. That's their parents. Yeah. That's their siblings. Like the stuff is, I mean, it's, yeah, there's definitely a huge financial component, but it's also people's lives and you don't really get that back. So it's, right. you know, it's if your kid, you know, gets screwed up by one of these surgeries or like, you know, becomes addicted to Adderall at right. 14 years old. Like, you know, you don't get that kid's life back. Like the kid is kind of starting off from way behind and they're kind of being screwed. Yeah. Justin and I have talked about this a lot starting our company. And I think, I think people have been gaslit on this issue a little bit. I think, you know, when you go to a public space, you know, and I'm not trying to be too morbid here, but you go to a public space and you look around, you see, there's a lot of people suffering. Um, I see a lot of people that are obviously obese. I see a lot of people that clearly have some chronic conditions, you know, dealing with depression. But I also see people like trying, you know, I, I don't yeah. think people are systematically like, do you think people are systematically 80% of adults trying to be overweight or obese? Like, 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 I don't think they, nobody wants that. There's a broken system. People want to be healthy. People want to be there to go to their child's wedding uh, and, and see different milestones. You know, this generation is now going to die earlier than the last for the first time. You know, the life expectancy has been going down the longest period and most sustained period of American history since 1860. Um, I, I just think like I have a little bit more optimism for people than that. I think we're stuck in a bad system and lost our way. And I think, you know, I think education is very important. Incentives are very important. Uh, it's a public policy. And I think personal empowerment is very important. I mean, again, um, I don't have all the answers by any means, but personally speaking, being on this health journey has been very personally rewarding. I mean, it's just, it's just, it's just I think it's just interesting to explore and question, you know, the system a little bit more and take, you know, a little bit more ownership and questioning over what's happening in our amazing bodies and, and how we can, you know, promote health for our family. I mean, it's, it's, and a lot of people are on that journey. Um, 
There's a lot of books being written, a lot of podcasts talking about it. Um, I think the biowearable revolution is huge. In, in, in dozens of U.S. states, patients still aren't allowed to have their medical information, their medical records. We've totally walled off data yep. from the patient, but now that's we're breaking through that. I think that's very important. So, you know, I, I think there's a movement happening, but it's going to be a bottoms up. We've got to we've got to ask questions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Actually, and this might be a bit beyond the scope of what you're working on, but I think it's worth touching at least is, you know, it's one thing, you know, there's a lack of focus on the the sort of top of this whole, uh, I, I would say, actually rewording it a little bit, health is like downstream of food largely. I mean, there, there's a bunch of other factors, but food is certainly one of those factors that's kind of above or what, what your health uh, results kind of flow from. But one of those things under food would be the food quality as well mm -hmm. over, you know, the last call it 50, 75 years, whatever time, time frame you want to put on that. And I'm curious if you, if you're familiar with this or if you're not, you know, we can skip this topic, familiar, but you know, yeah. yeah, things like monocropping, uh, glyphosate, uh, um, yeah, like all these things. And just kind of the context for this is, you know, my family, like I was born in the U S but my family is, uh, you know, immigrants. And one thing that people will always comment who come here from, you know, places like India, for example, is they'll say two, two things. And my grandmother stayed with us for uh, like 2020 during COVID. And so I was hearing this every day from her is one major thing she noticed is the fruit in America is a lot bigger and water filled mm -hmm. than fruit in, in India. Like the size mm -hmm. is just bigger, but it's not necessarily like it tastes worse to her. Yeah. She didn't, she yeah. didn't think it tasted better. She thought it tasted more watery. Yeah. Um, like apples, for example, was a big one um, that she would always point at. And then the second thing is actually like the wheat. She was not a fan of even like whole grain, you know, buying whole grain wheat and stuff in America. She just thought there was something off There's something about wrong. it. Um, and yeah, and so that's just, you know, one thing that I think is like we talk about food and these things actually make it that you're fighting a losing battle because you can make like to your point of you go to public space, people are trying it's like people could be even trying to eat the right things, but if they're being poisoned by those right things, you know, they're not going to see the results. There are things you can obviously do to improve that. We can talk about some of those solutions, but, yeah. um, you know, I think there's, there's definitely a, like most people probably haven't even heard of uh, regenerative farming or monocropping. And, you know, these things are, are, I think also fundamental issues in this, this, this whole uh, issue that we're talking about. It, it's so key. It's so key. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm writing a book on um, this large topic of metabolic health, but we're, re we're really the soil and this, these are aspects are actually extremely important. And just talking to my partner, Justin, and he actually thinks it's worth a book and, and, and said he wanted to write a book on, I think an underdiscussed issue, which is just the nutrients of our food have plummeted. If you take like a vegetable from today versus like 50 years ago in the United States, the nutrient profile is totally different. If you go to Sardinia, a country in, uh, you know, an island off the coast of Italy, you know, and pick a tomato off the, off the hill, um, by some nutrient levels, it's, it's nine times more uh, in Sardinia. Wow. Like, like fundamentally. So, so this is an issue, you know, another existential so eating issue. A, eating a tomato or an apple is not the same, just like it's not an apple is not an apple, right? It depends on so many other variables. Well, just think about into. yourself and, you know, think about a human that's an Olympic athlete that's working out, that's eating great protein, that's eating, you know, the, the, what their body's like. And then what a human who's like drinking not enough water and, and eating a lot of processed food. Like it's the same thing with the soil. We do, you just have to get a little bit more connected to the food. And, and I think this is actually where it all comes together on environmental causes. I mean, people talk about environmental causes being an existential issue. It hasn't been you know, the issue I've been on fire at, but I think it, I think it kind of ties this, it kind of ties a more selfish way to, to what we're being fed. Um, the the monocropping and the practice we use, you know, to create these subsidized components to our processed food diet, which is basically grains and corn and certain crop, you know, just those crops that go into processed food and, and seed oils. Uh, but it's basically grains and corn. Um, it, it's led to a devastation of the soil. Uh, because because it's just not how farming is supposed to happen. You're supposed to have you know diversity, and um, there's an amazing documentary called Kiss the Ground, which I would recommend everyone. You know, I never thought I'd be sitting around with the family watching. I would consider that kind of a hippie years ago, but it is one of the most powerful, impactful documentaries I've ever watched. 
that deeply goes into how these monocropping practices have led to the soil, which is what gives our our food nutrients. Um, it's it's totally been depleted. You know, you pick up a soil probably in, in, in India or one of these small family farms, and it's just crawling with trillions of different microbes and and bugs, and it's alive. Here, it's basically it's turning into dirt, um, and that leads to so yeah, um, uh, the the regenerative farming, you know movement is huge uh i just took a visit to one in la the our, our uh, biggest little farm which is another documentary and um that's a huge huge part of it you know our company now you know we're doing doctor prescribed food as medicine letters and i will say that you know th- this isn't perfect but you really this is an argument for organic right um, organic is not perfect. There's a lot of, a lot of different opinions on that, but it's one start. It's one start of what a person can do. I think, you know, think about organic selfishly. Um, there's crazy amount of chemicals, um, and, and bad farming practices used that's outlawed in most other countries, excuse me, that are going into food. And, um, and that, uh, yeah, so, so that's going into the microbiome, and those chemicals are causing unknown issues uh, with, with us. The microbiome, this is a term being thrown a lot about, but it's, it's, the, it's the, in the gut. It's, it's what regulates serotonin, as I talked about earlier. It's what basically regulates so much of our bodies, trillions of, of different bacteria cells. And you think about the, the, these compounds and these pesticides, they're showing real damage uh, to the microbiome, which has a lot of different effects. So I think a start is to, um, is to do organic. I think regenerative is going to become more and more popular. Um, you know, I think pasture raised is really good, um, you know, for meat. And, you know, that means that that means they're walking outside eating bugs, not just eating like, cause the, cause the animals now for the most part are eating grain, which is GMO right. and glyphosate. So, it's a huge part of the puzzle and, and we're trying to only recommend food, you know, as we think about food that generates health that uh, has as least chemicals as possible on it. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I mean, I'm sure there are companies trying to game the organic and pasture raised and all these labels, yeah, sure. um, you know, but I think to your point, it's a step in the right direction and, and you can probably, there's probably, I don't know if this is a business to be made or it's a nonprofit idea, but like, there's probably some independent type of organization that could be built that would, you know, verify these kinds of things. Like does pat cause you know, I didn't know this, like uh, this is not from, you know, anything that you guys would touch, but I didn't know until a couple months ago, like there's no such thing as like sushi grade fish. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's right. like, that is essentially a label. There's no, let's put it this way. There's no organization deciding what sushi grade fish means. Um, that's kind of up to whoever's selling you the fish to call it sushi grade or not. And so the recommendation was, Hey, if you, if you're buying from someone you trust and they're telling you it's sushi grade, that's great. Then they're, you know, it's right. And if, you know, it's not someone you trust or it's just a grocery store, you might want to be a little more careful about it. Well, that. you know, it's legal to use food coloring and stuff and this, you know, yep. which, which many people do. And, um, yep. Yeah, again, if you if you if you think too, you know, that you can get a little despondent looking into all these ways we're, we're rigged. But I, I think, again, you know, working with with our content, with our company, with our book, I, I think there are a number of of steps you can start taking. I, I do think I do think working to eat whole foods and really limit your seed oils, added sugar, and processed grains is a start. Um, and oh I yeah, that would too. That, yeah, that would get people really far. Uh, I think that gets you far. Yeah. And then I think, um, you know, another just point to, to close it, you know, that kiss the ground makes is that it's a total misnomer to say that like shifting farmer practices would um, even be that much more expensive long term. I mean, um, we've just kind of decided on these monocropping policies. It's there's not a huge even economic reason. We've just through some pretty crop practices. It's really a result of crazy farm subsidies. And this push in the 1960s, as I mentioned, to make stuff packaged and shelf stable, you know, it can be undone. And it goes into, you know, you have the crops growing with the cows. It, it, actually, a cow on a regenerative farm does not emit CO2 It's like it, because there's so much going on. But a cow on a monocropping without, you know, various uh, plants around, it, it emits a lot of CO2. It's, it's just like it's a crazy rabbit hole to go 
into of how I think we really screwed up, you know, how farming should work. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's just, I think, a journey I think a lot of us are on, right? It's like you, you being a little bit more curious about this genetic information you're putting, like, like where did that food come from? Um, you know, but yeah, whole foods, yep. whole foods, scan the label for sugar, seed oils, processed grains. You'll get 90% there. Yep. And then probably there's another, you know, few percentage points you can eke out with uh, moving, you know, just move around and find some activities that you like doing. I think that's another area that, that, that would that would help not as much as food, but it would certainly help. We've got to get food right. And we talk a lot about food. And I think we shouldn't be, just and I talk about this a lot, like we shouldn't be fool ourselves. I, I think sometimes actually what, what Coke does and what I, what I helped to throw in my career is they shift the discussion to exercise. Exercise is extremely mm. important. Uh, we've got to get food right. If you're not getting your food right, um, you know, and then you're exercising uh, two hours. It's like that. That's a problem. But the pillars of metabolic health, the pillars in our opinion of medicine, are food, sleep, movement, chronic stress. Um, mm. I think those are the pillars of what impacts our cells. And I think they're simple things. But we've talked a lot about food, sleep. There's a lot of talk about sleep, the, the YB sleep book I would highly recommend, but there's a ton of research. And, it, and it, I would say, and I think most doctors would say this now, you should rather sleep that extra hour than exercise if you're choosing between, like, like you've got to get the foundational sleep. It's crazy. My sister started uh, Levels Health, uh, who's had, they have millions and millions of glucose data points with what people are eating and how it's impacting. If you don't get like an hour or two extra of sleep or the right amount of sleep, your glucose, your, your, to your impact of your good diet is totally out of whack. You've got to get the foundation of sleep. The sedentary lifestyle is an absolute scandal with kids as well. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy. You know, um, uh, you know, we're obviously becoming more sedentary, which is a huge problem. And not to undermine that at all. That is a huge, huge problem. And then chronic stress. I mean, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness. And um, I think the psychedelic renaissance is actually very important. I think it's a huge societal issue that 25% of the country is on a mental health medication. Um, there might be a place for those at some points and no, no judgment at all. And a lot of good friends and family members are, have been on those, but like, but they are a numbing instrument. They do numb you from, it, to me, it's, 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 it's a further extension of not dealing with the root cause. So some of yeah. these modalities that deal with the root cause of trauma, um, I think are more important. And we've kind of been shying away from that. Uh, but those are the, those are the four things, but those are four areas where, you know, corporate interests, um, again, I love corporate, I think corporate, I think Coke should be able to sell Coke, but we should be speaking out about the dynamics of what's happening because we're kind of under attack on all fronts. Yeah. Yeah, no, completely agree. Um, and well, I guess maybe now it's a good time to talk about like what you're doing at True Medicine and how, how do you guys, you know, I'm sure this is a, it's a massive problem. There's so many different fronts to, to kind of attack it on, but you know, what piece of the the puzzle are, are you guys working right. on? And then maybe what's kind of the long-term vision for where you, where you guys go from here? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of foot soldiers needed in this. Uh, and we asked, um, Justin Maris, as you, who you mentioned, um, we bonded over this topic of how do we make people healthier? How do we incentivize people to be healthy? It's a simple question, but so much is slanted against the American patient right now. You know, crappy food that we've talked about is subsidized and then health insurance only kicks in once you're sick. We basically wait for you to get sick. How do we change those incentives? If we can chip away at the incentives, I think, you know, we're going to get to a better place. So a policy instrument that we've become very excited about is the HSA, FSA tax-free accounts. Excuse me. Um, now, these are something we've probably all heard of. Justin and I always ignored it. We clicked through it. But most Americans have access to these. It's, it's, it's where on open enrollment, you can have some money taken out of your paycheck pre-tax. That's pre-income tax. That's like 30, 40% savings. And a family can have $7,200 a year. Now, you, a lot of people don't contribute to this because it's like some of it's used or lose it, some of the instruments. And it's like, I don't know if I'm going to get sick. That's what's wrong with healthcare. We shouldn't be saving money for when we get sick. We actually are brewing metabolic dysfunction right now. And we should be incentivizing Americans to eat healthy, to sleep, to exercise, to take their supplements, things like that. 
What we found, what the, what the regulatory insight that we found is that with a doctor's note, if a doctor says you should take more vitamin D, you should exercise, you need some help, and eat sleep to help sleep more, that counts as medicine. It counts for FSA HSA spending. I actually don't think our company should be necessary because it should be self-manifestly obvious that these things are good for everyone. But the way it works right now is you need a doctor's note. So we have a very, very seamless process. We're actually going to be integrated right in the payment flow of some leading supplement brands, exercise brands. You take a couple questions and we'll be able to auto-approve you and do that compliance work for that doctor's note. And then if you have an HSA, FSA card, and, and no, but none of these people are finalized, just, just as an example. But if you're buying your favorite supplement, if you're buying an aid sleep, we're not, we're, we're not signed out with Peloton yet. But like just as an example, exercise equipment like that. You will be able to buy with your HSA right in the flow. It'll be, it'll, it's it's going to be an approved payment option similar to PayPal and Affirm. So that's just our stab right now of making it as seamless as possible. And we do think there's an opportunity here. There's $140 billion currently sitting in HSA, FSA accounts, very under-optimized. You know, a lot of people just load up on contact solution at the end of the year. If we can drive that spend to food as medicine, I think it helps chip away. And we really... Uh, it's been it's been cool in the past week, uh, you know, with with this expo today about Coke. Um, even members of Congress have reached out and uh, very excited about what we're doing. Really think it's good policy that we're pushing on and really trying to understand how to change the food system. Very conservative Congress people and very uh, people on the far left. So I think there's this 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 consensus around incentivizing food as medicine. This is one way we can do it right now. And True Medicine is trying to make that as seamless as possible. So. I'm on Twitter at Cali Means, where we'll be, you know, talking more about it. And you'll have TrueMedicine.care uh, is our website. And um, yeah, we're gonna we're we're gonna be pushing that forward to save people money on food and exercise. That's awesome. Yeah, um, and I'll put your Twitter and the the website in the, the show notes for sure. Um, so de- everyone should definitely check it out. Um, you also have a book coming out, right? Yeah, yeah. I mentioned my sister a couple of times. She's uh, Dr. Casey Means, who's become a metabolic health, you know, outspoken person, and on a lot of the podcasts. Um, and her story really influenced me. I mean, she was the pride of the family, you know, Stanford Med School surgery, and then was performing surgery five years into uh, into residency, and realized she didn't know why people were sick, and realized that almost everything is tied to inflammation, which is tied to food, and there wasn't one nutrition class taught at Stanford Med School. And she abruptly left at the top of the game, started this company, Levels Health, um, got a platform. So we're, we're the co-authors of the book. It's in her voice. And um, uh, it's going to be weaving her story into really tangible tips around metabolic health, around kind of awakening on health. Um, we're going to be publishing that with Penguin uh, in about a year. It, it, it's a learning That's experience awesome. that books take a while uh, to, uh, to get depressed. But yeah, we're really excited. And I just feel very grateful to be carrying this message too. No, that's awesome. Yeah. And uh, maybe as that gets closer, we could do maybe That'd a part two. But, but uh, as we wrap up, a couple other things I wanted to touch. Um, so, you know, one thing we, we try to do on this show is really inspire builders, you know, people who are trying to solve these problems by building solutions. Obviously, you're doing that. Uh, a bunch of the other guests have done that. You know, are there opportunities that you've seen in health or, or in food that as you've kind of explored the space, obviously you have the lane that true medicine is going after. Right. Are there other areas that you've identified that you're like, Hey, I wish somebody would go solve that problem or, uh, that would be a really, you know, cool area for someone to go explore further. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll give some high level concepts. Uh, if I had another, other billion dollars ideas, I'd, I'd, uh, you know, I'd probably be saving those and, and, I honestly don't have the exact answer. And startups are crazy, as you of know. Course. I mean, you kind of got to iterate. And, yep. and I think, I think, I really feel good about right now that um, we're asking, we're really wedded to the problem. We're really wedded to the problem of incentivizing healthy behavior. So, so here, here's my take on that: is there is a, uh, a most uh, idea generation and funding in healthcare is still going to the existing system. You know, it's 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 pills, Viagra delivered in a millennial pink package, but it's still you're ordering pills. It's better UX for medical records, which is still just kind of in the existing system. It's little incremental changes and, and frankly, a lot of incremental farm innovation. I think, I think, okay, so the healthcare system needs to change. We need to get more root cause. We need to get more to food. That's a good moral argument. I think it's, I think it's right. But I think it's an economic argument. I just can't like kind of stop thinking about the math. 
Like we are going to go bankrupt as a country based on healthcare spending, where we wait for everyone to get sick, fat, diabetic, heart disease, and then try to like manage their sickness and give them drugs that don't work. It's like, it, it's not working. Uh, it's, it, we're going to be a non-competitive bankrupt country. Like, like that's not hyperbolic. That's, that's literally like, like mathematically like a certainty. It, it, is, it is an unsustainable path. So if you're really thinking about something, a trend to devote your life to and a 10, 20 year thesis, you know, you're thinking about what's going to happen. How do we actually bring that curve back to back to normal? Like, how do we actually like start getting Americans healthier and, and, and costing our system less money? It has to, in my opinion, be from food and lifestyle habits. And I think there's, you know, our FSA HSA thing is the first thing, but I think there's going to be more and more money in public policy going to incentivizing food and health. Um, so I think the food is medicine movement personally is a big thing, but just, just thinking about those incentives, like how not an, if you're thinking about health ideas, my pitch would be maybe not like an incremental change of how to sell into a hospital, some incremental thing like today, but where, where are things going? Like where, where, if this math really is, is unsustainable, that means there's going to be a big crash, a big change. And I think it's going to happen quicker than we expect. So that would just be my pitch to kind of sniff around. Um, and I don't think enough people compared to the opportunity and, and, and are. And then I think, I think investors who are on like a 10 year horizon from who we've talked to um, uh, are, are aligned with, with that general thinking. And if you can paint what the future looks like and, and, and a good thesis there, I think there's a lot of appetite. So that's my pitch on health. It's gotta be transformative. It's gotta be disruptive to the current system, not feeding into it. And, and kind of along those same lines, but with a different angle, um, if somebody's just an individual listening to this, or maybe they are a builder, but they're also thinking about their own individual health or their family's health, you know, what are, what's a good place for them, you know, to start in terms of research, um, any blogs, books, videos, et cetera. And we'll put all of these in the show notes. If you don't have them off the top of your head, that's fine. We can obviously, uh, throw them in the show notes later, but yeah, any like top starting points for people who are just, they're listening to this and they're like, wow, this is crazy. Uh, I need to go learn more about this. Yes. Well, I, I've got, I, we actually have a couple copies of this book and I'm using it to prop up my computer right now because I'm at, I'm at an office on the go. Is this food, food just, fix? Yeah, food fix, food fix. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I would highly recommend this book by Mark Hyman, who uh, this book and Mark has, Dr. Hyman has had a huge impact on me and my sister. And uh, now we're lucky to have him as an investor in the company. But uh but Food Fix is one of the best systemic overviews of the connection between food and health. So I'd highly recommend that. I'd highly recommend books by Dr. Robert Lustig, two books called The Hacking of the American Mind, which really, really puts the what's happening to diet, what's happening with social media and the chronic stress that's happening with kids there, what's happening with drugs. Um, it, it puts it all kind of in the context of the child's mind, which I really think is the battlefield of where all this stuff converges. Um, and, and I, that book had a huge impact on me. I personally think, you know, Robert Lustig is, is very prominent in his books have sold a lot, but I think these should be some of the best selling books in the country. I, they really had a huge impact on me. Uh, Hacking of the American Mind and Metabolical, which is his recent book, really about the, the metabolic crisis and how that's the underpinning of disease. Um, my sister, Dr. Casey Means on Instagram, Dr. Casey's Kitchen, uh, is super positive stuff and, and uh, what they're doing at levels, both with the company and, and their content is just amazing. And I think has had an impact on a lot of people. And frankly, the levels blog, I mean, they, they, they are just a standard bearer of like, like they have invested a ton in highly technical, but readable medical writing and have hundreds of articles on almost any topic on kind of waking up from this. Um, and I think the podcast circuit is very, you know, um, very encouraging. I mean, you're talking about it, you know, people that aren't focused on health specifically from Joe Rogan on down are talking about these issues. Um, Peter Atia, uh, Andrew Huberman talks a lot about this, has had a huge impact on me. And um, I just think being curious, and I know a lot of your listeners are, and I'm proud to be on that journey. The last thing I just say is I'm bullish on the bioware revolution. I think it's, it's up and down. I think there's a lot of companies that are probably going to fail in that space. But I think in 10 years, we're going to have a lot more biosensors we're going to be able to measure. I think we're going to have a much better dashboard on what our ketone levels are, what our what our hydration is, what our glucose levels are in real time. That's going to importantly give us give us actionable information. Uh, the feedback loop will be tighter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just like, yeah. hey, like you actually will feel tangibly better if you drink 
more water right now. It's a, or you will you should eat more fat right now. There'll be actually a little bit more tangible of a feedback loop, and I, I think that's a big a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it feels like I don't want to say the the tide has kind of turned, but at least people are talking about it, and there is some momentum. And there's, you know, a lot of companies like what you all are doing and, and what others are doing in the wearable space and some other areas um, that are actually, you know, trying to fix a lot of these things. And I think the next few years are going to be super interesting in this because you're right, it is an unsustainable situation and we have yeah. to solve it. That's kind of what it comes down to. got to solve it. And there's a lot of great entrepreneurs thinking about this and it's, it's I'm honestly optimistic. Yeah, like, likewise. <laughs> well... Callie, this is uh, this has been super fun. Uh, we will definitely have to do a part two, maybe right. as the book gets a little closer. But and maybe you know we can bring your sister on too. You guys can do like a all right. We'd love to, man. Or something. I really yeah. appreciate what you're doing. Yeah, no, I appreciate what you're doing as well. So um, everyone, check out the show notes. There's gonna be a lot of links in there, um, books, resources, true medicine. Uh, check that out and let us know what you think on Twitter. Thank See you sure. next time, Callie. Thank you.